In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hey Camille, how are you? We are back. It feels like a really long time since we've had this chance to chat, Camille. I know, I know. It feels like it's been over a month. I I think it probably has been, or close to that anyway. It probably has been, and it feels great to be back. Welcome to 2019, everybody, and a new episode of On Order. We have tons to catch up on today, because as usual, there's just a ton going on. Um, Starting with the holidays, just going to say this really quickly. Thank you so much to everyone who made our year end the best ever. It's a huge fundraising season for nonprofits and you guys really stepped up. We had amazing holiday parties across the country and uh, lots of people gave us their support in the form of gifts. So thank you to everybody who participated in that. And on a more personal note, Peter, you had some nice vacation time over Christmas. Well, vacation... Camille is a relative term. Uh, Let's just say you were out out of of the country. country. Let's put it that way. I was out of the country. I was in uh, Germany visiting my wife's family, and I had a little bit of vacation, and it was really lovely, but it's good to get away. Uh, The weather was certainly lovely over on the continent, as they say, and it was was great. It was fun to be in Germany. I enjoyed it. Um, In particular, I also spent a week in London, and I can tell you, Camille, what I already knew from your last trip to London. I mean, London is off the hook. London... London is what I dream the world will look like when it comes to vegan food in the future. I mean, it's really that insane. Like, I don't know about you, Camille, if you remember when we used to travel, I would go and like look for vegan restaurants and which ones am I going to hit? In London, it's such a ridiculously futile episode because a futile exercise because it feels like you turn around every corner, there's another vegan restaurant. I know. The problem is actually trying to get through all the ones on your list that people have said, or you must try this one, you must try that one. The problem is not finding food. It's just having enough like stomach space to eat everything. It's it's utterly insane. Uh, I have to say, I liked they, they have they have vegan markets like on a regular basis across the oh, city. Oh, I went and- to one of those. It was epic. They're unbelievable. Those were some of the best meals I had. I'm trying to remember actually the best meal I had. I'm blanking because I remember there was one near the end of my trip that was really fantastic. But but it was really wonderful. And uh, it was just incredible. Really, it's almost it was more the breadth of selection was like better. It wasn't it wasn't per se that anything I ate there was so much better than what I can get in Edmonton or Toronto. It was just more so the availability of everything was so insane. It was just really crazy to just be able to go in. It really was to me like the vegan future. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, the UK, if you look at the media over there, like pretty much every day, there's a major newspaper article about something to do with veganism. So I'm, I'm not surprised that the food selection has really stepped up, given how much discussion there is over there about that the issue these days. Well, I was staying in a pretty, you know, posh, you know, hipster area of town. In, in oh, Hackney. you hipster. Yeah, I'm, I'm 
my, my friend's hipster. I don't know about <laughs> me. I was just staying there. But I'm just like in Hackney, it was really unbelievable. It was like you walk down the street and you hit like six vegan restaurants in a row. It's like it's just it's, it's really kind of nuts. But anyway, um, that was really fantastic. But Camille, I think you have uh, buried the lead a little bit because holidays is really not the big story of what's taken place since our last podcast. It's an honor to announce, Camille, that that we're both award winners now. It's true, Peter. You're finally joining the ranks. On, <laughs> finally, what was, it, was it New Year's finally. Eve? We got the amazing news that we had been nominated for a Clavi Award, which is like a Canadian law blogging award in the podcast category, and we actually won one of them. We did, Camille. We won the Clobbies. It has been an honor. I must say, Camille, this is my third Clobby. <laughs> so you <laughs> Not actually for were an award winner before, is what you're I telling was, me, Camille, and you just pretended for, you that know, you were really for things that didn't matter that much. I had won before in the video blog category for the work I've done on evidence and criminal law blogs. And I, I was nominated for something else. God, I can't even remember, but, but I've, I, this is my third time that I've actually won, but it was, it was, it was, it's very nice to win. And of course we should give a shout out to some friends of ours who also won, um, um, the, the awards, uh, our friends, uh, uh, um, Michael Spratt and, uh, Emily Tammon won the golden Clawby Award for best overall everything. So yeah, we're really it's happy not even for them. a podcast specific award. It's like a blog, podcast, basically like any form of media award. So congratulations, Mike and Emily. You guys are awesome. I'm not sure Michael deserved it this year, frankly, for the way he was <laughs> acting over the summer, but Emily certainly deserved it. And I'm willing to be gracious enough to say that Michael might have deserved it. But Camille, I realize that although this is a joint award, really this is really your award, Camille. I'm reading right now from one of our nominees, who, who uh, Atricia Lewis. You must know Atricia, who nominated our, our, our podcast. And, and here's what she said, Camille. Paw in order featuring the best host ever, Camille Lavchuk. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really, Ouch, as Peter. always, all about Camille. Thank you so much, Atricia. I really appreciate the support. We have decided, based on Atricia's wording, as I, I tweeted already earlier this week, we're going to change the name of the podcast from Paw in Order to the Camille Lavchuk Show. Well, that's pretty fair. I mean, j just so you don't feel too sad about this, Peter, Atricia is like my best friend from law school. So, you know, she's got to support her girlfriend, right? Well, if it was just Atricia, I might feel that way. But I believe there was another tweet this week that nominated or that pointed <laughs> out the great Camille Lapchuk. And I'm like, where am I? Nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere. I'm just Chopped not even liver. there. Chopped liver. Well, or the vegan equivalent. Yes, that's that's what it uh, turned out to be. But Camille, in addition to the clobbies, we have more exciting news just about the podcast because we, we've realized we've been sort of, you know, so busy with the holidays and everything. But wow, here we are coming the end of our one year of podcasting, which means that our very next show is going to be our 25th show and also our one year anniversary special. So I'm very excited about that, Camille. Yeah, we're going to have a very special episode for you guys to celebrate one year on the air or on your iPhones or your podcast app or whatever yeah we're gonna buy everybody i think it's the show where we give away cars to all our listeners a car for oh, you yeah. a car for you it'll be just like oprah maybe like a vegan chocolate bar at least or something or, like that anybody or, we should I have do an that idea. yeah oh, go ahead a special discount code <laughs> this actually brings us up to an important issue which is that one year on peter we can say that we now have a podcast sponsor we do. We've we've satisfied one of our big goals. Wonderful podcast sponsor. Camille, tell us all about them. 
Well, The Grinning Goat is our wonderful podcast sponsor. The Grinning Goat is both an online vegan fashion and household boutique. You can buy anywhere across the country, and uh, they ship across Canada. They also have a storefront in Calgary, so if you live in Alberta, if you live in Calgary, you can stop by and check out their amazing selection of footwear, clothing, um, soap, shampoo, all kinds of things that you might want to find. And uh, I understand, Peter, that you actually recently made a purchase at the Grinning Goat. I am particularly pleased to note that I made my first ever purchase from the Grinning Goat. It was shipped quickly. It had everything I wanted. I got a wonderful pair of shoes that I wore today from Vegetarian Shoes and a couple of pairs of beautiful socks. And I'm really thrilled about it. I was very pleased with every aspect of the experience and the Grinning Goat totally delivered. Now, Camille, have we given out our exclusive discount code? Because really, I said this before the break, and I don't think enough of our listeners have taken us up on it. So it's a new year, ladies and gentlemen, and we really need your help. We need you to support The Grinning Goat because that indirectly supports our podcast. So please go out there and buy something from The Grinning Goat. The Paw and Order discount code is PAW15. Is that right, Camille? That's right. PAW15. Enter the checkout. They ship across the country. Enjoy. Very excited. And I should add one last thing. By the time this podcast is out, I am finally going to visit the Grinning Goat. I'm very excited. I'm going down to Calgary for a presentation two weeks from now, which is going to be January 24th. So I'm excited to say I will be in the Grinning Goat. I wish I could give an exact time, Camille, so that I could meet (laughs) some of our listeners. But anyone in the Calgary area who is excited to say hello to me at the Grinning Goat, I would be delighted. I'm looking forward to meeting with everybody there and uh, telling our sponsors about how great it's going. Oh, can't wait. All right, Peter. Well, since we've been off the air for like a month, there's so much news to catch up on. Shall we dive into it? Let's dive into it. It's been incredible. And frankly, most of this news is actually recent. Like this, it is just blown up. And, and needless to say, it all starts with our main topic, which we'll, we'll leave for a bit because we're coming to our big topic, which is one of those stories. But it has been incredible how many things have been popping out in the last couple of days. It's almost like all the courts decided to wait until after January 1st and then just released a bunch of decisions. So one thing that our American friends have been working on, some pretty exciting uh, case law out of the Supreme Court of the United States. Absolutely. Um, This isn't actually a Supreme Court case. It was an attempt by uh, a variety of groups to challenge animal-friendly laws, and uh, they lost at the various state courts, so they have to seek leave, which means they have to ask permission from the Supreme Court to actually appeal these cases. And the two cases stem from uh, California and Massachusetts. Uh, uh, They are bans on cage confinement in Massachusetts and a foie gras ban, which we've talked about uh, on Pawn Order before in California, and um, they have to seek permission, and that permission decision was reached last week. That's right. The U.S. Supreme Court said it will not be hearing any appeals in those cases. So they're putting an end to all this foie gras litigation. And I can't remember when the foie gras issue first came up, but it was like back in 2012 or 2013. California banned the production of foie gras in the state and the sale as well. And since that time, foie gras producers and restaurants have been attacking that ban in any way that they can. They mostly lose, but they did did win one case at one level of court in California. And so that kind of gave them some wind in their sails. But then they've consistently lost again every single attempt since then. And the saga is finally over now because the U.S. Supreme Court is the end of the line. So that's great. 
And like you said, Peter, it was challenges to uh, Proposition 12 in California that we spoke about on this podcast previously in the fall when that passed back in November. That was about an issue of giving animals more spaces and ending intensive confinement systems. And a very similar law that was passed in Massachusetts uh, recently as well, another ballot initiative that outlawed a lot of intensive confinement. So that is all now at an end. And uh, animal advocates have won three pretty huge victories. Yeah, that is great. And uh, kudos to all the people involved in fighting for that particular case. So it, it is it is a good it is a good decision. Ultimately, it's up to the consumers, sorry, the consumers through the government to decide uh, the types of limits they want to put on on agricultural production. And they've chosen to do that. And they've chosen that these issues uh, are significant enough within the state to warrant uh, bans of this sort. And, and I, I, I couldn't see any strong legal basis for correcting it. I mean, the hard part, as we've seen in our political structure, is, you know, getting those bans in place. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting. I mean, the, the two confinement laws that, that went through, they were both ballot initiatives, which is an ability that a lot of states have as, as advocates can get questions on the ballot so that through di- direct democracy, citizens can vote on initiatives. And I have mixed feelings about whether I think that's a good or bad thing for democracy. I mostly think it's probably bad, but you can't deny that when it comes to animal what are, protection what, what, laws. Camille, are you upset about, uh, you think California has a problem with its, say, I don't know, tax structure? <laughs> that was a citizen's initiative, and California's budget has been screwed ever since. But anyway, sorry. Oh, it's so messed up. And, and someone who goes to vote in the States has to work their way through like 80 ballot initiatives on their ballot and try to figure out what they all mean. And I think it's I think it's a problem. But yeah, you really can't deny, Peter, that it's been good for the animal protection movement to get these issues on the ballot because people overwhelmingly support banning horrific animal practices. Yeah, it's definitely been a good thing there. And I'm pleased to see that the courts, uh, you know, even by denying leave to appeal, agree. Totally. So a little closer to home, our colleague Anna Pippis, Animal Justice's Director of Firmed Animal Advocacy, wrote a piece in the Toronto Star about why the government should make it easier for people to make good food choices, and specifically choosing more plant foods, which are better for human health, better for the environment, and of course don't involve immense animal cruelty. And uh, it's kind of a timely piece because we're in the first week of, of the new year at this point, or I guess the second week, and people are starting to make New Year's resolutions and thinking about changing their diets and eating better and eating lower on the food chain. And she explores why... Oftentimes, it's just not set up to make it easy for people to do that. And there's a whole bunch of government policy tools that we could use to facilitate that. So things like labels with accurate information about animal suffering that goes into products, Uh, things like subsidies to drive down the cost of more healthful food, and uh, taxing foods like meat that are really carbon intensive and bad for human health. Yeah, there was a, um, um, in addition to Anna's piece, um, I really liked the piece that was put out by Conrad Yakabushi in the um, Globe and Mail. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, Camille. No, I didn't see it. Yeah, I tweeted about it yesterday. Um, uh, maybe we can put a link to it um, in the show notes today, but it was it was really a, a wonderful piece. I like when that sort of stuff comes out um, of the Globe, for example, and it's just sort of a, um, um, a straight up you know, recognizing that this is a problem. Sorry, I'm trying to link to it right now as I speak. And apparently, um, Camille, in case you didn't know, I'm over 40, so I cannot do two things at once. I'm, I'm a male over 40, so I cannot do two things at once. <laughs> um, 
yeah, it's just a flaw of my, you know, general state of being. Sorry, I think I've got it here together. But I really like the Akabushi piece because it also points to that. And it essentially says, look, food and food and dairy lobbies should not be able to control Canada food choices. And uh, it's a really good little piece sort of slamming, you know, don't get me wrong. I love what Anna has to say, but Anna's one of us. And whenever we can get, uh, uh, you know, a columnist of the Globe and Mail to recognize that, um, um, you know, the, the science should be what governs these particular decisions. I think that's a great thing. And, and I wonder, I wonder, I'm assuming, is, is there any chance there will be litigation on this? I find it hard to believe, but it, it, it strikes me as a plausible option for the food and dairy lobbies. I mean, not that they're going to win, but that they might want to run at this. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I would welcome that because I think in general, anytime there's litigation by animal use industries, it ends very badly for them because the public is given an opportunity to scrutinize their positions. And that usually doesn't make them look good. So I hope they do and, sue someone. And, and not only that, I would love it so much more because we'd have two big heavyweight parties because they'd have to sue the government. It wouldn't be them coming after us. So essentially, they'd be suing the government for putting out some sort of misleading food guide um, on the basis that science requires you to eat your meat and dairy or die. Um, and, and I think it would be wonderful for that sort of thing to go off because, you know, then the government would be able to defend its case on the basis of scientific uh, evidence. Wow, yeah. And can you imagine having some sort of judicial ruling that examines that evidence and accepts as fact that plant-based diets are healthier? I mean, that would be great. Anytime you can get that, it's always fantastic. I just think that's that's the best. And I just wanted to point out um, there was a line that I put in that was so great. And of course, I, again, I can't... Uh... You know, I'm sorry, Camille, I, I cannot walk and chew gum at the same time. There was a really <laughs> wonderful uh, line from uh, Jakob... Jeez, I want to be able to... Conrad Yakubuski. I found the article, Peter, but it looks like it's only open to Globe subscribers, which I am not currently. So we'll link to it in the show notes all the same. And if you do subscribe, you can check it out. I think I found the line. He goes through the entire thing and he talks about the environmental benefit as well. And this is my favorite. Milk and meat are chock full of nutrients, but they are not essentials of the human diet, especially as the sources of the nutrients they provide are more readily available to Canadians than ever. And then he goes on to say why milk and meat are not good for the environment or for Canadian health. So it's really a wonderful little piece. And in addition to that, of course, it's talking about the Canada Food Guide. So this is a really big change. Well, that's cool. And I have to say, like, we didn't explicitly put this in the show notes to discuss, but just the year end pieces at the end of 2019, start of, uh, sorry, end of 2018, start of 2019, about veganism and why it's important for us to all eat more plant based. And, you know, The Economist called 2019 the year of the vegan. I think McLean's did something pretty similar. Like, the amount of coverage that this issue is getting right now is just like nothing I've ever seen before. Yeah, really good stuff. Let's talk yeah. about uh, cats and dogs, Camille. California, cats and dogs. California becomes the first state to ban the retail sale of cats and dogs. And I believe, Camille, unless I'm forgetting something, didn't we in December, I know we talked about the UK position that I, I don't think had gone into effect yet, but they were certainly uh, trying to pass. I think, unless I'm missing something, Camille, the UK is a little busy right now with something other than banning <laughs> pet retail. A little distracted. Could be. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think you're right. We're we're seeing this really good move from California. Uh, lots of cities have already banned the uh, retail sale of cats and dogs and rabbits, in often cases. But this is the first state level ban, 
And yeah, I think you're right that the UK is has either now done so or is in the process of banning what they're calling third party sales of, of puppies and kittens. Mm. So mm. not direct from a breeder, but via uh, pet stores. And, and let's just say to talk about that, because I haven't looked at the California ban, I should be honest, I've had a bit of a busy week. But um, let's be honest that I'm not a big fan of pet breeders per se. But but I, I do think that the UK plan is sort of, you know, it's sort of sensible in light of the market as it is today. Do you know what I mean, Camille? Like I'm not, I don't like bona fide breeders and registered breeders, but if you start, if you, if you want to put down a regulatory overlay, it, it's, it's one thing to just say, we're going to ban all pet sales and say, you can only go to shelters, but that's the type of law that just doesn't have the political traction right now to actually work. So I do think it makes sense to say, well, we're going to, then if we're not going to ban all pet sales in that sense, we're going to move to an interim thing where the first thing we have to do is shake down the market and prevent um, the bad breeders from doing this. And the only way we can do that is by creating some kind of regulatory oversight of the breeders we do allow to sell. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, like you, I'm not a fan of breeders at all. I think that they're directly resulting in shelter animals being killed every single day uh, through flooding the market with other animals who don't need to be born. But you're probably right that the public is not quite ready for a complete ban on breeding animals and selling those animals at all. Um, and I think there'd be significant pushback if, if that was introduced. But starting slow by shutting off retail sales at pet stores and actually licensing and registering breeders would be a big step. Uh, BC is now in the process of doing that, which I think is going to be a good move. We should actually do a, a show at some point about dog breeding issues and just dog issues in general, pet sales and things like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because we could we could get on a rant. I could tell you all the things I hate about breeders, but but I and I, and I have plenty, but I, I do. It's sort of like saying I don't like farmers, but I believe that a regulatory oversight network that made sense over farmers seems to me like a sensible oversight step. And that's the way I feel about breeders. And in a sense, you have to ban the others from the market. If you allow third party sales and other sales outside of stores or whatever to take place, place, um, then it's impossible to regulate anybody. And I think that's what, wait a minute, Camille, isn't that the situation in Canada? (laughs) (laughs) I think I just, I just indirectly described Canadian law governing pet breeders, which unless I'm missing something, Camille, um, there are a few provinces that deal with this a little bit, but generally by and large, is it fair to say it's the wild west out there? Oh, pretty much. BC and Manitoba do have some requirements, or BC is in the middle of bringing some in, and Manitoba, I believe, has some already, but they're not particularly strong, and that's only a couple of provinces. Yeah, I did look at those, and I think Nova Scotia is in the process of doing some as well, or has some. There, are, there are there are bits and pieces here, but they're not, you know, they're not to the extent that we're talking about in which there's actually regulatory oversight. And goddamn, do we need regulatory oversight of dog breeders? Like, it's just absolutely oh. ridiculous. Like, it, you know, leaving aside supply and demand issues, you know, there are considerable problems with the way in which breeding takes place that leads to pain and suffering for animals and now we're getting off topic or on topic. oh for sure but at the bare minimum we didn't need to know who those breeders are when i say we i mean the public the state needs to know who those breeders are needs them to comply with certain license conditions needs a way to shut them down if they're not meeting those conditions the public should have access to inspection reports all these things could be partially remedied by at least uh, regulating breeding yeah absolutely so Good on you, California. We appreciate what you've done. Okay. All right. P. 
Peter, your home province. I feel like there's always animal cruelty news out of Alberta. Why is that? I don't know, Camille. You're making me feel bad. It is true. Well, it's some... not your fault. <laughs> oh, wait anything, a minute. We have, we have two stories today from Alberta. Thank God. But <laughs> in, in fairness, Camille, in fairness, most of the barn fires are in your province. <laughs> okay, have... I will accept that criticism. We, we don't have that many barn fires, but we do tend to have these terrible cases of cruelty. Sorry, I don't know why I'm laughing because it's not funny at all. <laughs> not funny at all. It's terrible. But an Alberta woman has been charged after horses were found dead on her property. So, you know, again, one of these heartbreaking neglect stories. Um, nothing super out of um, the usual about this, other than that lots of community members have been concerned about this for quite uh, some time. So apparently the RCMP have now laid charges. The Alberta SPCA is also investigating I'm not sure to what extent that they're looking together, but it seems like um, a number of horses were found dead on a woman's property on December 20th and reported to police. So what's interesting about this case, Peter, I mean, it could just be a run-of-the-mill cruelty case, of which there are many, but this woman who is now facing charges was previously convicted of animal cruelty offenses in 2010 related to horses, rabbits, and dogs, apparently, from her farm. So I guess they removed 16 horses. They found one dead horse, um, a number of other issues. She was found guilty in 2012 and fined $1,500, which suggests to me that that was a provincial offense charge, Peter. I think that's probably right. Yeah, because usually, just for listeners out there who may not appreciate this, uh, fines of that nature tend to be provincially levied. There tends to be more penalties like jail time or probation for criminal code offenses. Uh, So she was fined and she was prohibited from having animals. uh, Actually, no, not entirely, but prohibited from owning or caring for more than two horses for five years. And I guess that ban expired in 2017. So at that point, she was more or less free to do what she wanted, um, she acquired more horses, and guess what? Some of those horses are dead. Well, there you go. And there, there are numerous parts of this from a legal angle that concern me. Um, I could go into several, which I, I think I will. I mean, the first thing of this that's that's irritating in particular is the... <sighs> I, I, I'm deeply troubled. We've talked about this. I believe this was our second show of the year on federalism. But uh, I'm deeply troubled by the fact that uh, agencies um, continue to lay charges primarily under the Provincial Act. And I think this case shows one of the weaknesses we've talked about in the past years of, of using the Provincial Act. And the reason for that is whenever you prosecute under Provincial Act, by definition, it's less serious. Um, if the witness, if the person, whether the person defends or not, it, it it is a much less serious charge uh, than actually proceeding federally. And the chances of getting a lengthy prohibition order, uh, like a lifetime prohibition order or a 20-year prohibition order, are, are, are minimal. It's very difficult That's to right. do. It's in a different court. It's not necessarily going to be prosecuted by someone who's even a lawyer. It's not necessarily going to be heard by an adjudicator who's even a judge. It's likely going to be a justice of the peace. There's a whole bunch of measures there that make it just a less serious prosecution, even apart from the penalties and the sanctions that could be levied. Yeah, which is why I'm I'm generally, I, I am, 
This, again, is another talk for the difference between federal and provincial, but because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this area. In fact, our main topic of the day is going to touch on this. But, you know, many investigators and many animal advocates, and I respect what they're saying, have come to the conclusion that it is just too hard to deal with our criminal code offenses, which are crappy. We've talked about that in the past. I won't reiterate why we think the criminal code is flawed. And God, for the record, Camille, I was working on the Halsbury Law of Animals uh, recently, and I had a chance to review four or five cases. I think I sent one your way that are just brutal decisions on the criminal law. They're just absolutely brutal because of the way our criminal law is phrased. So I understand the reluctance of advocates to want to prosecute federally. But the problem is whenever you go provincially, it's just a less serious offense. You, you run into all sorts of problems, uh, one of which is the ability of the person to leave the jurisdiction and no longer be bound by the prohibition order, something we've talked about in the past. But this is another one. Yeah, it's a huge issue. I am encouraged, though, Peter. It seems like because the RCMP are involved here and their orientation is to lay criminal charges, it sounds like the charges that they've laid is three counts of criminal code suffering. So I am glad to see that at least. I, I think that's right. And I think that's likely when you have a repeat offender that it's eventually going to levy up into the more criminal thing. I will point out just just to point, just to say one thing about this. I, I'm reluctant to criticize law enforcement officials or anyone involved when I wasn't there and I don't know what's going on. And yet I'm just about to lightly do that, right? <laughs> because this is a trend that I've seen before and it's something that bothers me. And it's just if you go through the facts of the case, it's like, so... We have people who took photos of horses that look terrible on December 9th. We then have the RCMP investigating on December 12th. They get another complaint on December 20th, and the, the, the accused is not arrested. And I am presuming the horses are not provided to the SPCA until the, 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 um, the, the person is arrested because there's no charges, right? So they can't do anything, but they're not arrested until January 4th. And again, I recognize it's the holidays and stuff, but man, it, it drives me crazy how the delays in these types of cases are involving living beings that are really suffering during that interim. It's concerning, and I, I think you'd see a, a lot of public outcry and much more concern about this if the victims were children, for instance. Well, well, that's what I mean. Like, imagine this was a child and you got a complaint on December 9th. The idea that the child would not be removed till January 4th is just, it's its unfathomable. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and you know, again, I, I'm also, also concerned about making too many criticisms without knowing all the facts, because there's probably a lot we don't know. But it's its not just this case. That's a common theme and a common pattern in animal Very cruelty common. investigations. Yeah, very common. So I don't want to go too far on that, but it, it is something that caught my eye. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we'll be following this and keep you updated on the outcome. Yeah, we've got one last story to touch on, and it's going to be very short, although it's a very significant story, but there is a reason why it's going to be short, Camille. And this is a story we've touched on in the past. This involves the International Whaling Commission, and this is a pretty big deal. It's a huge deal. So Japan has been sort of a rogue nation 
on the issue of whaling. Japan has belonged to the International Whaling Commission, but it has engaged in what it calls scientific whaling in the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. Uh, the scientific whaling is just a pretense. It's actually commercial whaling. They're killing animals and selling their flesh for meat. And there's been a lot of international media about this because groups like Sea Shepherd have gone down there to try to stop them. So Japan is now saying it's going to stop whaling in the Southern Ocean because it's withdrawing completely from the International Whaling Commission, and it's just going to go ahead and resume commercial whaling wherever the heck it wants in its own waters. Yeah, so this is a very big deal, and you may wonder why we're not discussing it. Um, the reason is this is a big story in and of itself, and there are some real implications to what's going to happen to whales and what's going to happen, what, what path Japan will proceed. And we feel, um, given that we have another major story to talk about in our main segment today, that we are going to pick up on this story in our next episode, and we are going to bring in one of the great experts. You've heard him here before, but my colleague at the University of Alberta, Cameron Jeffrey, who is a real expert and has written a book on whaling and uh, marine mammals generally. And uh, he's going he's gonna to bring us up to speed and, and, and talk about what this means for whales across the world. Well, that's really good news. I'm sure he'll be very enlightening. So stay tuned for next week's episode to check out that interview. And for now, I guess, Peter, it's time for us to dive into this episode's main segment, which is a big one. Looking forward to it, Camille. Let's get jump right in. And for today's main segment, we're going to talk about Animal Justice's latest case, which just came out on January 2nd. This is the Bogarts case that we've talked about on this podcast before. It was the constitutional challenge to the Ontario SPCA Act, so the way the province's laws are written and enforced with respect to animal welfare. Very excited, and this came down. Would have would have liked for it to come down a week or two later, um, as opposed <laughs> to right after the new year when we're all sort of, you know, recovering. But but this is a big deal. I know. I Can I just complain about the timing, too, for a second? Like, it was, it was good to get it. I'm excited. But I was so sick. I got sick before New Year's, and I was just, like, dying. And this case comes out, and so I'm, like, sick, writing media releases, uh, trying and to... I, I was... I was about to go in transit, so I was getting some, you know, media requests as well, and I, I really wanted to help out reporters by explaining what the case meant, and I was like, you know, getting on a plane, so it was, yeah. and it was, it was my wife's birthday, so the, 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 the day it came down, like we're all, we had all these birthday celebrations in Germany, and then the next day I'm on a plane for 20 hours. It was, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I was like losing my voice and trying to do 15 radio interviews, but we got through it, so. Yeah, you were involved in this case, Camille, much more intimately than I was. I was. I remember being very busy when this case was being prepared by our... We should shout out to our lawyers on this. Uh, it was Arden Beddoes and Ben Oliphant, and they did a wonderful job on this case. But why don't you tell us about the background, Camille? All right, well, this has been on our radar for a very long time. I believe first in 2013 or 2014 is when it came up. It was a constitutional challenge, as I said, to the OSPCA Act that was filed by some Eastern Ontario landowners. So there's a landowners association out in this area uh, near Ottawa, where I live, 
that is pretty libertarian and bent. They don't like a lot of state oversight of their activities and their property. And they had an especial concern about the OSPCA. And the reason for this is that the OSPCA is a private charity, but they're given certain government-granted enforcement powers. They can do searches, they can do seizures, they can arrest people, they can lay charges. They can do all these things to enforce provincial animal cruelty laws, and in fact, the criminal code as well. Uh, they can enforce any animal protection law in the province. So the landowners didn't like this, and they had some specific issues that members of the community had dealt with with the OSPCA. Sometimes they alleged misconduct, sometimes charges were stayed or withdrawn based on the actions of different OSPCA officers. So I think they'd sort of built up this narrative in their minds that the OSPCA was violating their rights and acting inappropriately. And someone decided to challenge the whole system. So instead of just defending charges in an individual case, they brought what's essentially a public interest challenge to the whole legislation. And really attacking this idea that a private charity is enforcing public laws without any reasonable oversight measures. So this happened quite some time ago. We were obviously aware of it at the time and very interested in getting involved since it affected animals and we wanted to be there and make sure we could be a voice for them in the courtroom. For a long time, not much happened with this case. There were some attempts by the province of Ontario to kick out the, lit uh, the litigation, so get it killed for various reasons. They tried to get it killed based on standing and they lost that, but they did make some progress in uh, getting some of the affidavits that were filed by the applicant struck out of the record. Sorry, but eventually you know, can I just interrupt you for a sec? I just, um, just a reminder, because not all of our listeners have our legal background, and and w when you try to get something kicked out on standing, we've talked about standing occasionally on the podcast, but an argument to get something kicked out on standing is essentially saying that the applicant does not have a sufficient legal interest in the case. And the reason is that the courts don't like what are called busybodies. You can't just go to court to attack things over which you have no interest. So the government came forward and said, this applicant does not have a sufficient legal interest to proceed. And by the way, Camille, it's the same sort of argument that's been used against animal advocates who try to advocate on behalf of animals. And we're told we don't have a sufficient standing to do so. Absolutely. And that's a really good point to bring up. Um, I was glad to see the case go forward uh, because I think that the decision on standing was good for animal advocates ultimately and just good in a democracy that citizens have a way to oversee the laws and challenge them if they think that there's a problem. But the, the attorney general was successful in getting the, the uh, idea that there's any private interest standing stuck down. So he said that Mr. Bogarts, the applicant in this case, who is an individual in the eastern Ontario region, he wasn't actually being policed by the OSPCA. There was no live issue between him and the OSPCA. So he mm. didn't have a personal stake in this game. Mm. But the court said very clearly that he is somebody who considers this to be a matter of public interest, um, is concerned about the system, and so he does have public interest standing. Cool. What next, yeah. All right, so we got involved uh, when it came time for the, the hearing to happen, and we decided that we would intervene and address some of the issues that, raised, that were raised in this case uh, and provide a perspective to the court that was different from the applicant, different from the government, which was defending the legislation, but really make sure that the interests of the animals are first and foremost. So I guess, Peter, I should talk a little bit about the three main issues that came up in the case and maybe go over a little bit about what we had to say about them in court and what the judge ultimately found. 
Sure. Why don't we talk about one at a time and then we can go through them in a bit of detail. But yeah, I like that idea. Let's talk about what it was about. Okay, so why don't we start with the two issues that ended up not being so contentious in, in the end, uh, the, the issues that were sort of less prominent when the decision came out. So there's three main arguments that the applicant brought forward. The first is he said that this whole system where the province regulates animal welfare through the OSPCA Act, he said that that was an improper use of provincial authority because really what they're trying to do is enact criminal laws, which is a matter of federal authority and not of provincial authority. So he made a federalism argument. Yeah, and and, and and obviously, we've talked a little bit about these federalism things. We haven't talked about the constitutional aspect of federalism, although I, I think we did touch on it in our very second episode. Was our first episode? No, it was our second episode. No, episode number two. If you want to check this out, go back to episode number two, and you can find an interesting discussion. Yeah, we, we did talk about it. And, and let's just say, I don't want to talk about this in great length because it's not really important for animals and it's not really, but, but I think indirectly it is because it goes back to that issue that we've talked about, about federal versus provincial legislation being used to safeguard animal interests. And the only thing I'll say about it is these days in federalism cases, it is so rare. Judges have sort of, in the old days when I was going to law school, Camille, federalism was still a big deal. And the courts really worked hard to separate the division of powers between the governments. And nowadays, boy, unless those laws directly contradict each other, they let everything go in federalism cases, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's pretty well established that there might be a federal criminal law, which is a valid exercise of the federal criminal law power. And there might be a provincial law that looks pretty similar, but it's not a criminal law. It's being done for a regulatory reason that's grounded in valid provincial powers like ma like jurisdiction over property rights, for instance. So the judge in the end didn't end up spending very much time on uh, the federalism question. It was dismissed pretty handily. Uh, animal justice didn't even intervene and make any arguments on that particular point. We just kind of left that one because we felt like there wasn't a lot to contribute. Yeah, absolutely. But nonetheless, an interesting issue for the future because I do think there are some provinces with provisions. What, what I think this case stands for is the, the provision being attacked was the distress provision and the idea that, you know, causing an animal distress is essentially the same as cruelty. I don't actually think that's the case. So I think that the federalism case was a bit on the weak side, but I am interested. There are some provinces who have provisions in their provincial laws that Boy, do they seem close to the federal laws, a lot closer than these distress provisions. Well, and then the other thing is every time a news release is issued about cruelty charges being laid, even if it's provincial charges, they're described by law enforcement, usually SBCAs or humane societies. They're often described as being animal cruelty charges and, um, you know, the charges are being brought to punish animal abusers. So the language used is also very criminal in nature in a lot of mm. cases, and it's not as regulatory in nature as, as might be appropriate. But anyway, that didn't end up amounting to anything. Let's go to the big ones. All right, the big ones. So search powers, that was another issue challenged in the case. The OSPCA is given all these search powers under the statute, so they can search... Uh, private property to see what kind of conditions animals are being kept in. Um, there's certain restrictions on how they can do this. They, they can only go at a certain time of day. 
So between the hours of, you know, essentially business hours, um, it has to be in animals kept for exhibition, sale, boarding, or hire. So commercial activities. Uh, they can't just walk into people's private homes or dwelling houses without a warrant for, for doing so. So there's restrictions and there's limits on their powers, but they do have broad search powers. And Peter, we intervened on this question and made some arguments about it. Uh, search the powers of law enforcement agencies to do searches are limited by essentially what's reasonable. So the Constitution requires that searches be reasonable. And so this is essentially an argument over whether what the OSPCA was granted was reasonable or not. Yeah, it was. And the judge decided that it was. And I'll just start here by saying, Camille, that um, as much as I admire what this judge has done in this judgment, I have a fair bit of expertise in this area, and I don't think his reasons in this particular part of the judgment are as convincing as they could be. Um, it's 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 sort of legally technical, and I don't want to get into too much analysis of this because it's not really the core of what we're here to discuss. But uh, I think some of his decisions on this are suspect, and and it wouldn't surprise me if they are appealed. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'll I'll just turn maybe to the points that we made in the context of this uh, part of the case. Yeah, we were absolutely. there to say that animals are a special class of victims, and search powers have to be reasonably tailored to make sure that they can effectively be overseen. So the points that we made are that unlike in other situations, animals are uniquely vulnerable. So they're frequently kept on private property out of public view. That means it's very difficult for a member of the public to see what's happening to them and report that abuse. Uh, they can't report neglect or abuse themselves. And there's no oversight mechanisms by the government to make sure that breaches related to their care are identified. So it's not like there's any proactive inspections of animal use facilities. There's nothing like that to sort of proactively see what's happening inside these closed doors. So that's uh, exactly why we said that it's important for there to be robust, preventative and investigative search powers, more so than in other regulatory contexts. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of merit to that. I didn't want to suggest that I was saying otherwise. I think there's a lot of merit to these search provisions. Um, what worries me a little bit is the way the judge treats one of the provisions in particular, which allows uh, inspectors to enter any warrant or building, including a dwelling house without a warrant, um, as long as they believe that the, the animal is covered by these particular conditions. Um, um, because there's an order to relieve distress or have the animal examined. Um, I'm not sure that one's going to fly, and the judge's reasoning for why it's not going to fly um, is, is I don't know how to say it, it's unconvincing. The judge decides that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy, and I don't see how that's possible. I don't see how you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your house. Um, and the judge comes to this conclusion by saying there's an order directed, and as a result, effectively, uh, there would be no objective, reasonable uh, expectation of privacy just because the OSPC investigator initially had reasonable grounds for believing the animal is in distress. And I don't see how that's possible. It seems to me when you're coming into a dwelling house, um, there's always a reasonable expectation of privacy. So, so I'm not convinced that one's going to be upheld if this is appealed. Mm, well, and just on the note of an appeal, uh, we should note that the province does have 30 days to decide whether they'll appeal this case. And um, as does the applicant, they could cross appeal for the issues that they lost on. So we'll see what happens and keep you posted for sure. But that will be interesting. Let, let me just say, let me just say, since you brought that point up, Camille, I will literally fall over stunned 
if this case is not appealed. There is enough oh, I agree. there. I totally agree. Um, yeah. Not, notwithstanding that it's politically in their interest to appeal, um, I will be absolutely stunned because, it, as I've said, I am generally an admirer of what the judge has done on the main points, but there is there is some there is some reasoning there that's troublesome, and I I think there are, there is room for the province to appeal, and I would be very surprised if they don't. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would for sure too. But I will say overall about this section on search powers, I'm pleased that the judge explicitly cited our arguments. He definitely incorporated them into his findings. And I, I think that's a really good thing for animals. Yeah, me too. Again, I don't want to say otherwise. I think the judge did a lot. And in fact, Camille, I'm going to take a moment to read part of that because I think it's really important. And I think this part of the judgment I love. I, ha I have some issue with some of what the judge did, but I certainly have no issue with the idea that the second contextual aspect asserted by the intervener relates to the difficulties in enforcing animal protection legislation. Animals are uniquely vulnerable. They cannot report neglect or abuse. And there are no oversight mechanisms to ensure that breaches are identified. Therefore, animal protection legislation requires robust preventative and investigative search powers. And the judge tends to agree with that. And I think that is very, very powerful logic and really important for animals. Definitely very strong language, and I'm, I'm really proud of what we were able to accomplish with, uh, with that intervention in that respect. All right, let's get to the good stuff, Camille, because really, at its core, this is a challenge about the OSPCA's right to continue to investigate animals, animal abuse. Yeah, yeah and here's the real kicker. I mean, this is the, the crux of the decision. The judge agreed with the applicant and agreed with us that it's not appropriate for the government to delegate enforcement powers to a private charity without any oversight or accountability mechanisms. That is and some pretty powerful And the amazing stuff. thing about this, Peter, this is going to be something that law nerds will understand, and I think we should explain it for non-law nerds. The judge actually decided that there was a new principle of fundamental justice which exists housed under Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And do you want to explain for listeners, put on your law prof hat for a second, what the heck is a principle of fundamental justice? Sure, that is a big deal. Principles of fundamental justice are essentially core principles that exist in our legal system. They are so um, critical to the existence of Canada as a nation that they are things that effectively you cannot contravene. So essentially the government cannot put in laws that take away our principles of fundamental justice unless there is, of course, justifying reasons that they can do so. Um, and under the constitutional, uh, the Charter's Balancing Clause, which is Section 1, which allows all constitutional violations to be uh, justified when there it is you know, in a, it is a reasonable measure in a democratic society. But the principle of fundamental justice is so critical because um, so once something is recognized as a principle of fundamental justice in our legal system, it tends to have a great deal of power. And just to get a sense of what some of the principles of fundamental justice are, I mean, there are one example is the right to have a lawyer when you're detained by uh, police. And uh, that's a principle of fundamental justice. The right to remain silent. That's another principle of fundamental justice. Justice, and there are a lot of them. And the reason that they're so important is that once something is recognized as a principle of fundamental justice, it has constitutional force in our criminal justice system, and it's very difficult for the government to 
create a rule that conflicts with the principle of fundamental justice. So for the judge in this case to conclude that things like the transparency or the need for transparency for a police investigative agency is essential, well, that is a very big deal from a constitutional standpoint. That's a huge deal. I mean, this is a, the most interesting Section 7 case to, to come out in quite some time. Uh, it's often been argued that there should be a new principle of fundamental justice that says whatever. Uh, and the courts seldom accept those arguments. This is a huge deal that they actually did accept it in this case. So, uh, and what I'm particularly proud of as well is that this idea that there's a new principle of fundamental justice and the way it was articulated is something that we brought to that litigation. Uh, it was something that Arden argued in court and that Ben drafted. And I'm really proud that we managed to introduce this. So that's the legal standpoint. And because you are also the executive director of Animal Justice, let me ask you, Camille, why do you have so much hate on for the OSPCA? <laughs> well, I actually don't. And I, I would hate for this intervention to be misinterpreted as, as being against the OSPCA, because that's not it at all. And this is a good time, Peter, just to talk a little bit about the structure. We've done so in the past, uh, in past episodes, but for anyone who hasn't listened to those with bated breath, let me just give a refresher. The OSPCA is a private charity. They get a little bit of government funding, less than $6 million every year, and they use some of that to do investigations, they use some of that to do sheltering, and they're given all of this enormous legal power. So there's actually an OSPCA Act, it's a statute that gives them authority, and it says they have to do all these things. There's no other area of the law, Peter, where private charities enforce public laws. And what's been really concerning for us from the perspective of the animals is a couple things. Overall, I don't like this system because it sends a signal that animal law enforcement is less important than all of the other areas. The government is saying, by having this system exist, they're saying, you know, we're just going to wash our hands of animal law enforcement. That's something private people should deal with. You guys should raise money. You guys should do this work. The government's not going to get involved. I don't like that. I think that sends the wrong message. And if we were starting from scratch in 2019, it wouldn't be that way. And it only is that way, just backing way up, because when the first cruelty laws were enacted in the UK, all prosecutions were private, and there wasn't a police force that dealt with animals. So the Royal SPCA as a private charity sprung up at that point, and that model just spread throughout the Commonwealth. So this is a quirk of history. It's not something that we would devise today, I think, if we were thinking rationally. So Peter, that's reason number one. Reason number two... I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and we've talked about that on the podcast before, so that's not a surprise to anyone. Reason number two is that the OSPCA is not subject to things that the police are subject to, so that would include freedom of information legislation, that would include oversight by the Ombudsman of Ontario, and that would include police the, the Police Services Act, which sets up a process for complaining about the actions of an officer. It sets up accountability mechanisms so that the public can have a way to oversee the police, essentially. And the OSPCA wasn't, wasn't, isn't subject to that. Yeah, and also what's problematic, and we can go further because the judge doesn't get into all of these things in detail. I mean, those are valid reasons why we as animal advocates should be concerned. But I'm also a criminal law professor, and, and in my criminal law hat, I have some real issues with SPCA investigators, no matter how well-intentioned they are, because essentially you're giving power to a private charity to make decisions of a very public nature. And I, I think that's really troubling. And that was at the core of what the applicant was arguing. 
And I tend to agree with them. And for the reasons you pointed out before, there is no other area of law in which private investigators are essentially given the power to perform these public functions. And I think that's very troubling on a number of levels. And again, we should preface this to some extent, Camille, by saying that we have a great deal of respect for the hard work that SPCA investigators are doing in the field. And this is not designed to knock them or say that they're bad people or shouldn't be doing this. But the truth is, we think they shouldn't be doing this because at the end of the day, there are real concerns about the idea that a private investigative body, which is essentially raising money to support the investigations that it does, is able to then go out and decide what types of investigations to do. And I'm not convinced that there are significant benefits to allowing these private bodies to do that. Yeah, there's a really obvious conflict of interest, as you point out. They're, they're forced to raise money to fund their operations and make sure animals can be protected. But they're soliciting funds from those very same people that they are policing. Yeah, which is really troubling in a lot of different ways. And I've always been worried about the fact that in some of these cases, I'm not going to say this happens every day, but in some of the cases, <laughs> again, let me be clear, when we're talking about conflicts of interest, Conflicts of interest in law are generally regarded as apparent conflicts of interest rather than actual conflicts of interest. And the reason for that is the damage is done by the fact that you can perceive a conflict of interest. It's not always sure. I don't want to say that these SPCA people are doing this on purpose. But the point is, whenever they're raising money in some of these cases, and in some of the cases, like the sled dog case in BC, they raised a lot of money like a lot of money to pursue a very complex investigation. And there were questions there. I investigated that case in some length for the book that I'm working on. There were some real questions there about conflict of interest based on the way they had handled the case at first interest instance. And, and, and I, I don't want any of this to happen ever. I don't want there to ever be this conflict of interest. And I don't want you know, people like Mr. Bogarts and the people who are being investigated about this to always be able to raise the conflict of interest by suggesting that these SPCAs are animal protection agencies, because that's what they are. No, it's not right that every time cruelty charges are laid that the accused person goes on a collateral attack and says, well, I don't like who laid them. You know, that's not really the main issue in the case, but it is if the system is allowed to continue. And I think you're right, Peter. It's, it's absolutely not an attack on the OSPCA or any other entity. I think that they've been set up in a way that is uh, improper, and they're doing absolutely the best that they can under the circumstances. I, I know that there's so many good people there trying to do this work, but they've been set up to fail. I agree. And I, I think there are good reasons, you know, we may want to get into this because we've had some offline discussions with people about the merits of this decision and what it's going to do. But there are people out there believing the sky is going to fall um, when the SPCA is no longer able to do this in Ontario, assuming this case is upheld. And frankly, I'm not convinced the reasoning in this decision is not applicable to other SPCAs. It's, it's perhaps there are some distinctions from province to province, but I'm not convinced the distinctions are as big as others do. And I think this this could be a cascade effect that would eventually uh, bring us to question the role of SPCAs across the country in doing these sorts of things. I, I think that would be a good thing. I mean, what the decision really says, it doesn't say that a private charity can't enforce public laws. It says that if the government's going to delegate search powers to a private charity to enforce laws, there needs to be transparency and accountability mechanisms. So the government could, I mean, they'll, they'll appeal. I think they'll appeal. But what they could do depending on how this all shakes out, is they could just go back and maybe redraft the legislation so that FOI laws apply. 
so that the Police Services Act applies, so that the Ombudsman can oversee the OSPCA. That's one option that they could take. And I, I, I don't think that that's so earth-shattering that the sky is, is falling in the way that maybe some others are, are concerned about. I know we've gotten a little bit of flack, to be honest, Peter, from friends who support SPCAs, and uh, obviously we support SPCAs as well and have lots of friends who do amazing work within them. Uh, I'm, like you, not convinced that the sky is falling, but I, I do think it's time to start this conversation and, and start discussing what the future of law enforcement might look like for animals. Couldn't agree more. I do think that's realistic, and I do think it's possible. The extent to which the judgment um, impugns ultimately uh, the SPCA's ability to do this, regardless of the oversight mechanisms that exist, I'd need to see what those oversight mechanisms are. I, I tend to think the weaknesses in the current model are significant, but I guess that's a matter uh, that will have to be dealt with on appeal. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think that's fundamental that didn't really make it into the judges' rule, reasons on this is this inherent conflict of interest around fundraising. So the whole idea that there should be integrity and... Uh, <laughs> free from the appearance of conflict of interest. That wasn't really central to his reasons. I still think that that should be central. Uh, perhaps, I, I tend to but... agree. And, and that's something that I think, again, like the judge accepts certain aspects of this fundamental principle of justice and carves them out as he sees fit. And that's entirely his prerogative. But I have no doubt that on appeal, these issues will be brought back. And I think it's possible that the principle of fundamental justice that was recognized in this case would expand to recognize that those conflicts of interest are particularly problematic. Yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. Definitely. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens on appeal because uh, I, I have no doubt that there will be tons of interveners lining up to get involved in this case now. It's funny how we we kind of mentioned this case, we let people know about it, and no one was really interested in getting involved. And now that I think the decision is out, people are starting to look at it and think, wow, we should be there. So I expect we'll see other humane societies or SPCAs, um, possibly individuals involved in municipal law enforcement. So I understand that some municipalities contract out their law enforcement to private bodies in some ways. Apparently there are railway police that are thinking about this decision that are private forces and concerned about it in some way. So I think it's going to um, get bigger. Yeah, I think so as well. And, 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 and we should probably just touch on the idea, Camille, we haven't really talked about it at length. Um, one of the things that has troubled me a little bit when I read some of the commentary about the sky is falling type idea, um, it's, it's all based on this notion, as I understand it, that if the SBCA doesn't do it, nobody will. And, 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 and I, I think that is just incredibly flawed logic from a number of, of standpoints. First, I, I am not convinced that this just means that it's going to revert back to government and then government will do this horrible job of actually um, doing this. I just think that's a sort of very narrow way of looking at the potential for other ways of looking at this. I tend to agree with you that this will ultimately kickstart a discussion about the way in which we should be doing things. And frankly, as we look around the world at different models that exist, there are other ways to do this. And in fact, some of them would actually integrate the SPCA in a more limited role in these types of activities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and some of these models that do things differently are actually in Canada. So in Newfoundland and in Manitoba, 
the well in newfoundland the rcmp or the royal newfoundland constabulary enforces animal cruelty laws in manitoba there's a bit of a mix but most of the work is done by the office of the chief veterinarian which is a public agency doing this work and then around the world peter there's tons of jurisdictions i mean it's it's mostly just the commonwealth jurisdictions where we've got this private charity model Elsewhere, there's often government inspection agencies. Um, And even in Canada, we've got the CFIA, which is our federal food inspection agency that does some of this work. There's a mix all over the world and even in our own country. Camille, in fairness, maybe we don't want to rely on that as an example. (laughs) (laughs) No, just to be clear, please don't anyone think that I'm applauding the CFIA. CFIA. They're atrocious, but (laughs) the model... The structure, at least, is a government one. Yeah. And we can get inspection reports from them, which we can't get from SPCAs. Correct. And I'm aware of there are there are ways in which you can do hybrid models. Um, There are states in the U.S. that have, you know, humane society agents working with police in a way that limits the humane society role, but continues to engage them. And, and, And I just think it's. It's again, that's what I found so troubling from some of the commentary that I've seen on this is like this. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? Oh, my God, this is a terrible thing. And uh, if the SBCA can't do it, this is going to be screwed because the government won't do it. And I yeah, tend, no, the, I tend the public to, would not stand that. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that that's a realistic concern. Maybe it was in 1892 when the SBCA had no choice but to act or nobody would. Um, I just think there are. I'd like to think we have the intelligence to develop other models should it be necessary. And let me say, we're discussing this as if it's going to happen. And the fact of the matter is, we're years down the road. Uh, My feeling is this is a case that could very realistically end up in the Supreme Court. It will almost certainly end up in the Ontario Court of Appeal. So we are many years away. So how about we use those years to think about some alternative models that might make sense? I think that's definitely the right approach. And that work is now underway. So a couple of things that have happened since the case came out just about a week ago. Zoocheck and Animal Alliance, we may have spoken about this before, but they have prepared a report examining other options, including options for bringing animal law inspection and enforcement in-house to the government. So they've put forward some proposals. And Kendra Coulter, she's an academic. She's a, a scholar with Brock University who's studied a lot of issues involving the OSPCA, and in particular some of the conditions that their staff inspectors face, which are... Um, potentially concerning labor conditions as compared to the police situation. Fewer resources, fewer protections, no firearms, things like that. Very very valid concerns, by the way. Very valid concerns. Incredibly valid concerns in in ways that uh, put OSPCA agents at a serious risk of public safety. Some are actually shocked that no OSPCA agents have been killed yet. So Kendra is, uh, has launched a public survey that you can check out. I believe if you visit her website, Humane Jobs, you can find a link to that survey, humanejobs.ca. And she's asking for the public's input on what we want to see happen with animal law enforcement in this province. So I think that you're right. This is going to be a long process of discussion. I think that's a really good thing. I don't think, Peter, that I or you or Animal Justice, that we're even proposing that we have all the answers about what should come next and what this should look like. But we know for sure that we need to discuss it. Well, I don't have all the answers, Camille. That goes without saying, but I kind of thought you did. My God, you're the <laughs> you're Camille Lapchuk. You're the host of Paw and Order. Come on. <laughs> Make it happen. I, all right. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll figure something out and let you know. We'll figure it out. Well, that is a case that is not gone. That is our big discussion of it, but this case is going to come back and we will be, I'm sure, referring to it on future episodes of Paw and Order. 
Definitely. Heroes and Zeros. All right, it's time. The first of the year, Camille, for 2019. Everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. And let me tell you, oh my God, do we have some good, well, good and bad Heroes and Zeros lined up for you. Yeah, yeah, these are these are hot stories. So our hero this week uh, is all of our U.S. animal lawyer friends who were involved in striking down Iowa's egg-gag law, which that decision just came out, and it was a stunning victory. The law was found to violate the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and it was struck down by an Iowa federal judge. Great stuff. Now, Camille, again, we've got to unpack these things. What the hell is an egg-gag law? Oh, luckily, we don't have any egg-gag laws in Canada right now. I hope that they don't make their way north of the border. But this is an epidemic in the state. So around 2011-2012, in response to undercover investigations into factory farms that revealed horrific abuse, you'd think maybe, Peter, legislators would want to increase animal protection laws and make the situation better for animals. But no. Instead, they decided to crack down on groups like PETA, like ALDF, like HSUS, who were actually doing those investigations. So they started criminalizing various aspects of doing investigations. So they might make it an offense to mislead somebody on an employment application and omit that you're actually an employee of an animal rights organization. Uh, They made it an offense to record an agricultural operation uh, if you're an employee there or not an employee there as well, too, I think. Uh, They sometimes would make it a legal requirement that if you witness animal abuse, it has to be reported within 24 hours. And in the context of a long employment investigation of a couple months or more, uh, that would make it very difficult for an investigator to establish that there's a pattern of abuse and that management is complicit because they would have to make a report and then they'd be exposed immediately and they'd be out. So these laws really interfered with the ability of uh, the public to oversee what's happening on those farms. I like to call them shoot the messenger laws, right? Instead of, you know, rather than actually crack down on the abuse, we will shoot the people or, you know, figuratively shoot the people. Prosecute them. Yeah, exactly. Prosecute people who reveal these laws. Absolutely idiotic laws. I believe they had some in Australia as well, or they were mooting the idea of doing them in Australia. But this is... uh, This is prime First Amendment freedom of speech type stuff in the U.S. And I believe they've been struck down in every jurisdiction where the challenges have gone up. Yeah, that's right. So, so far they've knocked out these laws in Idaho, Utah. Uh, Now we've got Iowa. And then the outstanding states are North Carolina. There's ongoing litigation. And this coalition of of groups just filed in Kansas as well. And I think there's probably three or four other states where um, there are a gay laws. And I expect that there's going to be lawsuits in those two. Well, great work by our friends there. But of course, for every hero, Camille, there is a zero. And holy crap. This this is... Wow, what a zero this is. This is a Titanic level zero that just popped up in the last couple of days. Oh my God, Camille, it's not Alberta again. Oh, it's Alberta, Peter. I'm so sorry. Alberta (laughs) police police officer. officer, Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, a police officer in Lethbridge, Alberta, was caught on video doing something. Honestly, it's atrocious. I watch a lot of cruelty videos, unfortunately, and this is among the worst I've ever seen. He repeatedly runs over a deer sitting on the side of the road with his large police truck. So what seems to have happened 
it sounds like there was a call, like he got a call because there was an injured deer. And so he shows up to the scene and I don't know what transpired next, but he makes the decision that he's going to run over the deer with his vehicle, presumably as a way of maybe euthanizing the animal, but that's certainly uh, what happened cannot be described as euthanasia. Um, A witness was sitting in her vehicle not too far away. She starts filming and I think she said that the officer ran over the deer at least twice before she took out her phone and then she captures him doing so a further three or four times. So he ran over that deer back and forth repeatedly. Every time it happened, Peter, I kept thinking, oh my god, this is, please let this be the end. But then the deer's head would pack, pop back up again. The deer is not killed. The deer is, is, is screaming. Awake, yeah. conscious, screaming awake conscious and screaming it is it is heart-wrenching to watch yeah there's many elements of the story that are interesting one of them is to highlight um, one of the weaknesses we've talked on this show before about alberta's provincial legislation which is really uh, uh highly troubling and i'm not i'm not suggesting this is a provincial offense but but certainly that would be my first step because several of the provinces um there several provinces in canada i'm not sure exactly the number five or six but have very clear euthanasia laws about the way in which though these are the more modern pieces of legislation and talk very specifically about what you can do with euthanasia and let's just say this isn't it and and but alberta has no such measure it has a general distress provision but it would be nice if there were clearer ideas about uh, the nature of euthanasia because then it would make clear that the officer can't run any kind of reasonable excuse defense or offer authorized by law defense because he would be breaching directly the way in which you're supposed to euthanize the animal not that i think that's necessarily an impediment to charges in this case no i I agree Um, It's not an impediment to charges. You can make the case that he's causing unnecessary suffering pretty easily. But at the same time, something like Ontario's legislation, which I haven't got the wording in front of me, but it says something like that if an animal is going to be euthanized, it must be done in a way that minimizes pain and distress, something like that. The the greatest minimizing possible. Agree. There's several provinces that do that. It's interesting, of course, that a case that we talked about, well, we didn't talk about Camille. I talked about it with with, uh, Sophie Gaillard when she visited me on the show. We talked about the Menard decision, which was uh, the uh, uh, an anniversary um, um, of uh, 40 years in, in July. And when we talked about that, what's interesting about Menard is Menard is a euthanasia decision as well. And Menard is the leading case on the willful causing of unnecessary suffering. And let's just say um, this conduct would, would, would really fit the bill for what they're talking about in Menard in terms of euthanizing an animal and the way you're supposed to do that. And the fact that this officer might have made a mistake for whatever reason, thinking that it was somehow okay or that this was the best way to to terminate the animal, sorry, to kill the animal and put it out of its suffering, the officer may have operated in some way out of the best of intentions. I'm wary of even saying this, but you know what I mean, like really thinking, okay, well, I've got to put the animal down. That doesn't mean you can do it in any way that you like. And you are su- you are subject to the decisions that you make. And when, when it doesn't work, you know, even if we gave this officer the benefit of the doubt on the first time, which I would be hesitant to do because there are a lot of things that should be checked before you try and kill an animal in this way. The question of running over the animal multiple times is really a struggle to accept. Oh, absolutely. And one interesting thing that is in the Alberta Animal Protection Act is it seems to require that if an officer comes across an injured animal that 
the officer seeks out veterinary assistance or the assistance of a humane society. And the statute says that the veterinarian should make the call about whether the animal should be euthanized. And only if a veterinarian's not available can the officer then make the call. So we don't know in this case whether that happened. Um, I would be surprised if it did. And I guess we'll see when the investigation comes out. It is. Yeah, it's interesting. I was surprised to come across that that section when um, researching the case. Because I'm just, I'm wondering the extent to which that applies to wildlife. I mean, it might apply to wildlife. I think you're, you're probably right. But uh, I just wonder if, if the idea of calling, um, calling that's when an officer comes across an animal. Is that correct? I, I'd have to look back at yeah. what, what it says, but it does apply to peace officers. It's specific wow. to them. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, the whole question about what should happen in the situation. Okay, so first thing you should do is call a veterinarian, call an expert. Officers are obviously not best placed to make this decision, and that's what the statute seems to recognize. Uh, And then I know, because I've received so many emails, Peter, about this issue from the public, and including from police officers, that the police community is appalled by this too. Uh, They actually do have training on how to deal with animals. Lots of officers have contacted me and say that, unfortunately, it's a routine part of their job to put down animals who might be injured in this way. I would And they do so with a firearm. Yeah. Uh, I would That's how they've been trained to do it. Yeah. And, and, and I just think, I think that's going to be the question for the, uh, the police organization that's assessing whether to lay charges and the fact that, you know, the, the, the officer's method was such a departure from the norm. It's really problematic. And, and, and I think the officer had to have known that there was suffering involved given, you know, what you can see happening in the video. The question is whether or not the suffering is unnecessary. And there is a pretty good case that it was. Yeah, it seems hard to make the case that it was in any way necessary to accomplish his his aim. So, interesting context to this case, the Alberta Special Incident Response Team is investigating. So that's an, a police oversight body. It polices the police, essentially. And I believe from the news reports that it's the first time that they've ever been called in to deal with an animal case, which is fascinating on its own. And they do have the power not to just prosecute police for violations of their code of conduct, but also to lay criminal charges. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to see how this takes place. I'm assuming it's going to take a little time before ACERT comes up with a decision, but uh, it's something very much worth looking for. Yeah, well, I have to say I was a little disappointed with a statement that ACERT put out. They said they're investigating. They said they're considering the animal cruelty um, issues that we've raised. So we put out a news release, and I did quite a lot of interviews on this. So I'm encouraged by that. But then they had to end it by saying something about how it's important to be balanced or reasonable about this. And they've received a ton of emails and phone calls from the public, and they just need to do their job. It's like, you know, you can do your job if the public is contacting you about this issue. And you should take that as an expression of the fact that people really do care about this and you should do your job very well and very seriously instead of sort of criticizing the public for getting involved and getting engaged. Well, you never liked that, Camille. You don't ever like the public getting criticized. I'm surprised you didn't tell the public to write to their MPs, Camille. No, they've already <laughs> done that. I'm glad they, they... Look, I'm glad people are concerned enough to, uh, to, to put pressure, you know, for a proper investigation. Make sure what's going on. I, I, I certainly, as a defense lawyer myself, I'm certainly hesitant to, uh, I haven't suggested this person should be convicted. I'm not even convinced that charges should be laid. I'm just suggesting there is a lot of evidence that seems to suggest that charges should be laid. Uh, but uh, yeah. I'd, certainly, I'd certainly want them to go through the proper procedures and decide, you know, what is the appropriate course of action in this case. 
Yeah, I agree. So it's encouraging that there's an investigation. ACERT has promised to release this report publicly or its findings publicly, at least. Also good. And we'll stay on top of this and, and let you know what happens. Absolutely, we will. Well, that brings us, Camille, I believe, to the end of our show. We've finished Heroes and Zeros. We've gotten through everything. And boy, am I excited. It was fun to get back into business. And God, I can't believe where has the year gone, Camille? That is, do you realize as soon as we sign off of the show, we've officially finished one year of podcasting. Wow, it's a huge anniversary. Number 25 next week. So stay tuned. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Camille. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye, Peter. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Works.